Welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Mike Britton. I'm an editorial director here at IHI, and I'll be filling in for Madge Kaplan as your host for today's show. Take a second and look around you. Whether you're staring at a computer, a tablet, a smartphone, or more than likely all of the above, you know that technology is everywhere in healthcare today. And for many reasons, that's a good thing. Technology is fast, it's efficient, and it can reduce errors. What's not to love? Well, a lot. Technology is not a cure-all. It can make people complacent, introduce new errors, and get in the way of meaningful face-to-face -face interactions. Still, love it or loathe it, technology is here to stay, and we need to learn how to get the most value from the digital world that healthcare increasingly relies upon. That will be the focus of our conversation on today's WIHI, the digital transformation, how technology is helping and hurting healthcare. For those who are new to WIHI, welcome. This is the Institute for Healthcare Improvement's online audio talk show, which we offer live, bi-weekly, and after the show via IHI.org and on iTunes. In the first half of our hour together today, our expert panelists, world-renowned patient safety experts Bob Wachter and Tejal Gandhi, will share what they're learning about technology's impact, both positive and negative, on our industry. We'll talk about the computer's role in the exam room, the potential of electronic health records, the patient provider frustrations technology is causing in the emerging world of wearables. Then Tejal, the, the former president of the National Patient Safety Foundation and part of the expert panel that created Free From Harm, accelerating patient safety improvement 15 years after to air as human, will home in on technology's growing influence on patient safety. Wherever possible, both experts will provide practical advice and guidance to you, the, our WIHI listeners. At about the midway point of the show, we'll turn to you to share your reflections, thoughts, and questions. What struggles are you having with technology in your day-to-day -day clinical life? Are you a fan of our new digital world, or do you yearn for the days of paper stacks, manila folders, and fax machines? We invite you to share and engage with these experts and the collective knowledge of our passionate audience so that you can leave today with some new, actionable ideas. Before we meet our guests and dive into today's show, here is IHI's John Gothier to let listeners know how they can make the most of their time with us. All right, Mike, thanks. Uh, just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. Uh, on the right of the screen is the chat window, and if you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask your questions to our panelists, so please make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Mike opens up the floor a little later on. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listen to WHI by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner. It says audio broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. The number's on the screen right now and on most of the slides. Also, if you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. A simple solution to any audio hiccups you experience may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then to press play. Uh, and if that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know their numbers on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've put a direct download link in the chat, and tomorrow they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with the chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they will send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on the program. Please take a quick moment after and to fill out a survey and let us know how we've done. All right, back to you, Mike. 
Thank you, as always, John. Again, we'll turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. We welcome tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so we can capture the conversation on social media and engage with other followers. Now, let's meet our expert panelists. Let's start here in our studio in Cambridge on a, gir- on a gorgeous first day of June. Uh, Tejal Gandhi, Chief Clinical and Safety Officer of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, leads IHI programs focusing on improvement, improving patient and workforce safety. Dr. Gandhi was President and Chief Executive Officer of the NPSF from 2013 until 2017 when the foundation merged with IHI. She continues to serve as President of the Lucian Leap Institute, a think tank founded by NPSF that now operates under the IHI Patient Safety Focus Area. She holds an appointment as Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Gandhi is a prominent advocate for patient safety at the regional, national, and international levels, driving educational and professional certification efforts and helping to create and spread innovative new safety ideas. So welcome back to WIHI, Tejal, your first episode as a member of the IHI family. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be here. We're happy to have you. Uh, Next up, calling in from the other side of the country in reliably picturesque San Francisco, uh, Bob Wachter is professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Wachter is the author of 250 articles and six books. He coined the term hospitalist in 1996 and is often considered the father of the hospitalist field, the fastest growing specialty in the history of modern medicine. He is past president of the Society of Hospital Medicine and past chair of the American Board of Internal medicine. In 2016, Modern Healthcare ranked him as the fourth most influential physician executive in the U.S., his ninth consecutive year in the top 50. In his book, his 2015 book, The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age was a New York Times science bestseller. Welcome to you, Bob. Bob, we have you? Yep. All right. Great. Thank you. Yep. Um, so let's jump right in. Uh, Bob, we're going to start with you. In the introduction, I touched on several ways that technology is helpful and harmful in healthcare. Uh, can you set the table for us a little bit, share your thoughts, and maybe some advice on how we can make technology more helpful? Sure. Thanks very much. And uh, let's let me head up to the slides here. Uh, so let me let me uh, describe my own personal journey and what got me interested in this, and then I'll quickly uh, run through some of the, what I see as the key issues in technology, what's working, and why it's been harder than we expected, uh, in, particularly in the patient safety field. So here's my own story, why I decided to get involved in this. Uh, main reason was my iPhone. I came to believe, like many folks, that technology was pretty straightforward, and you download an app, and off you go finding a restaurant or your way to grandma's place, and that it, it, if we could just have such tools and such magic in healthcare, it would be better and safer. And I think another reason was, for those of us who have been working in patient safety for a while, uh, how could you not pine for IT after seeing error after error that related to doctor's handwriting or information that didn't move it move from the hospital to the clinic or back out uh, again? Uh, and so this is a classic case. Here's a prescription, and if you're taking a look at this, you probably believe it's a prescription for Coumadin, but it's not. It's it's a prescription for Avandia. If you squint your eyes, you may figure that out. And of course, this caused uh, terrible harm. Um, And then what really got me interested in this was about three years ago at my hospital, UCSF Medical Center, a terrific place, we had a kid who was supposed to be getting one of these pills, uh, Septra, a common antibiotic, um, 
And instead, in a fully digital environment, we ended up giving him 39 of these pills, a massive overdose that uh, didn't quite kill him, but but uh, clearly could have. This was with the best electronic health record, computerized order entry system that about half a billion dollars could buy. And after hearing that case, I came to realize that technology was working in certain ways, but also causing all sorts of unanticipated consequences that it was worth uh, worth exploring. Now, I want to put this in a little bit of context, and the context is where digital health fits into the broader set of uh, drivers in healthcare. These are medical students at UCSF. They're fantastic and uh, optimistic and wonderful. I was talking to them a few years ago, and I decided to shake them up, and I said, you're entering a profession that is uh, totally unlike the one I entered when I finished med school 30-ish years ago, because you will be under enormous pressure to figure out how to deliver what essentially is high-value care. I said uh, better quality, safer, more satisfying, more accessible care at the lowest possible cost. And one of the students raised his hand, and he asked me, what exactly were you trying to do, which I thought was a marvelous question and sort of makes me reflect on uh, how, although we're all feeling like these pressures are new and a little bit uh, challenging to manage, all of the value pressures we're all feeling, uh, what's odd is not that we're under pressure to deliver better and safer and less expensive care. What's odd is that it's a relatively new phenomenon in healthcare, but it's here to stay and clearly one of the major uh, issues that, that, that truly is transforming healthcare. I'd say the second issue that is transforming healthcare is the fact that we are now a digital business. This curve here from the Office of the National Coordinator shows the penetration of electronic health records in U.S. hospitals from 2008 to 2015. Uh, 2016 data just came out, and it's up to over 90%. So if you look at this curve, what you realize is less than 10 years ago, one in 10 American hospitals had electronic health records. Today, uh, one in 10 American hospitals doesn't have electronic health records. So we have gone in a relatively short period of time from a an information-intensive business whose way of managing information was the three-ring binder and the post-it note and the fax machine uh, to a digital business, to a business whose electronic, uh, whose backbone is the electronic health record. That is a massive transformation in a relatively short period of time. Uh, how did that happen? Largely happened because uh, the federal government threw $30 billion at us in the form of incentives that were part of the stimulus package uh, that went to both hospitals and doctors. This curve, by the way, is a little less steep in the outpatient world, but 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 tends to mirror this curve. We're up to about 75-80% electronic health records in the outpatient world. So to my mind, we're in the midst of two massive transformations in American health care. The first is this pressure to deliver high-value care through all sorts of mechanisms. The second is the digitization of the U.S. and actually now international healthcare systems. If you ask me today in my day job running a large department of medicine, uh, which one of these consumes me, there's no question it's the value pressure. How did we deliver care that's better, safer, more accessible, more satisfying, uh, less expensive? Uh, this, if you ask me seven, eight, nine years ago, uh, which one of these will have been the bigger deal, I'm guessing it will be digital. I'm biased a little bit for, uh, for living in Silicon Valley and seeing all of what swirls around me. But if you ask the question, uh, what business 10 to 15 years out, out from widespread digitization uh, looks the same as it looked at the beginning, including the leading companies uh, being the leading companies 15 years later? The answer is none. The answer is, uh, if you think about retail, manufacturing, uh, financial services, travel, journalism, uh, the taxi cab industry. You can't think of a business that 15 years after widespread 
digital transformation looked anything like what it looked like in the beginning. My premise here is that we're only about five years into widespread digital transformation, so we have not seen anything yet. So, uh, as I said, I was looking forward to this. We were all excited about it, particularly if you worked in patient safety. What could go wrong going from analog to digital? Uh, well, the answer is a fair amount. Let me highlight a couple of uh, the things that I observed in the course of doing research for my book. This is Rich Barron, uh, now CEO of the ABIM, but prior to that, ran a uh, four-person ambulatory practice outside of Philadelphia. Very smart guy, uh, very digitally uh, enabled and engaged and decided to digitize his office 10 years before the rest of us. He told me that he digitized, he put in the computer, they thought about it, they thought about workflows, they bought the best system they could find. And the staff came to work that day, and nobody knew how to do their job, which is a profound comment and basically says that digital transforms the nature of the work and everybody's job and their relationships in ways that we did not predict nor plan for. And I think that's part of our problem. Second problem is digital has changed the relationship between clinicians and patients in ways that are profound and mostly troubling. This is a uh, now famous uh, cartoon or crayon drawing uh, by a seven-year-old of her recollection of going to visit the pediatrician a few years ago, ultimately published in JAMA. And you see here, uh, there she is on the exam table, mom next to her, sister uh, next to her. And there in the corner with his back to the patient, typing away, is the doctor. Uh, remarkably, the fastest-growing profession in medicine today is scribes, bringing people into the exam room so the doc can look the patient in the eye again. A marvelous drawing. The only thing the girl got wrong is the smile on the doctor's face, because as you know better than I, uh, physicians are very unhappy about the idea that they've become a fairly expensive data entry clerks, as have nurses and pharmacists and others. Part of the reason that doctors are so unhappy, I think, is is that issue of data entry, but I think there's something more profound that we're going to have to deal with. If you think about the electronic health record, it's a unique and powerful enabler of two things that are putting the squeeze on physicians, and one of them is uh, central and corporate control. Sorry for the glitch in the slide. But the idea that now somebody can look at your work in real time and, and influence what you do in a way that was not possible uh, when you were on paper, uh, that could be a healthy thing. It could be guiding physicians to practicing more evidence-based medicine. It could be all, all sorts of wonderful things, but certainly it could also be a level of, uh, of oversight and institutional control that physicians are not used to and can sometimes be harmful if it takes away their ability to uh, deliver patient-centric care to the person in front of you. The second thing the computers do, obviously, if you think about Twitter, our current political environment, uh, the Arab Spring, and all sorts of other examples, uh, the, the end of, uh, of, uh, of restaurant reviews or book reviews and, and, and the ascendancy of Yelp, uh, is they democratize and cause people to question expertise because everybody has access to the same information. If you're a physician, and I think it's true for all health professionals, but particularly for physicians, you're feeling the squeeze from both of these angles, and that's partly why we're seeing so much burnout. This final thing I'll show about why it's been so difficult. This is a, uh, an ad I found a few years ago for a hospital in Arizona. You can read it for yourself. And the ad is for an emergency room physician, and they offer have an ER and radiology and outpatient surgery, little tiny place. But the only part of the ad that was involved was they have no electronic health record. Amazing in a modern uh, a modern hospital, advertising for a doctor saying you can still use paper. A uh, final point I want to make is in trying to understand this, I came out of my uh, one-year journey trying to understand why digital was not working the way I expected. 
actually somewhat hopeful. And the hopefulness came from this concept, really, which is a, a, a term coined by Eric Brynjolfsson at MIT in 1993. He wrote of something called the productivity paradox of IT. And the productivity paradox, he wasn't talking about healthcare because we didn't really have much IT at the time. He was talking about industries like financial services and manufacturing that had brought in computers and everybody said, well, this is going to make things better and higher quality and more increased productivity. And the computers came in and three, four, five years went by and not much happened. And people were left scratching their heads about why it wasn't working. Uh, and it was captured nicely by this uh, quote from a Nobel Prize winning economist who said, you can see the computer age everywhere except in the productivity statistics. You went to the factory floor, you went into trading uh, room in Wall Street, and you saw computers everywhere, but you weren't seeing the gains. The epiphany that Bernyofsen and others had is the productivity paradox is natural. It now is expected in a way and generally gets better on average in about 10 years. And by that time uh, metric, we're about five years into widespread digitization of American health care, uh, both in hospitals and in clinics. Uh, how does it get better? It gets better when two things happen. I liken it to a safe deposit box with two keys. The first is obviously the technology needs to get better. And if you've used a current modern electronic health record, you realize that the state of technology has lots of room for improvement, and I, I believe it will. The second is more important, and the second is where all of you kick in, which is that people reimagine the work. People begin to ask questions uh, why does the doctor's or the nurse's note look like a piece of paper with a tab uh, in digital form? And the answer is because it looked like a piece of paper when it was paper, and all we did was digitize it. And then they said, huh, that's kind of crazy. Why doesn't it take on some of the attributes or the sensibilities of a Facebook wall or a Twitter feed or a collaborative charting the way a Wikipedia note would be? And they begin reimagining the relationships using digital tools to get the work done in better and safer and more efficient ways. I don't think we've begun to do that yet in healthcare, but that's what gives me hope. I think we're really at the first step, and the first step is digitizing the work. We've got to now go through the additional steps where we use the data uh, to understand what we need better and then begin to develop and implement the tools that will reimagine the work that will achieve the benefits that I think will, will occur uh, for us and for our patients. So let me stop there, and thanks so much for the opportunity. Great. Thanks so much, Bob. Great insights. A lot to unpack and think about there. Uh, listeners, I'll, I'll invite you. Feel free to chat in any questions for Bob, uh, and we'll get to those in just a bit. Uh, but first, let's turn to you, Tejal. Uh, before we get your take on technology's role in safety, I know that you, you have some great slides that we'll go through in just a minute. Do you want to reinforce or, or maybe even question anything Bob said in his presentation? Well, I certainly wouldn't question anything Bob Wachter has to say, but I will ask some questions. Um, Bob, in your book, you talk a lot about the high-tech piece and sort of this rapid adoption of EHRs. And do you think that that we just weren't quite ready in terms of the state of EHRs when we had that rapid adoption, meaning the you know we had such quick adoption, but really with tools that weren't ready for prime time? No, I, I don't think so. I, I think it's an important question because it feels that feels like the problem. My own feeling is the adaptive change aspects of healthcare IT uh, are such that you, we would never have gotten it right without people using it and complaining about it, unfortunately. It, it's sort of nice to believe that if we just waited a few more years, the technology would have gotten better, the user interfaces would have gotten better, the EHR vendors would have gotten smarter about it and integrated more 
clinical people into the design, I don't think they would have. I think we would have had the same technology. I think we needed to go through the pain that we're going through, which is implement people then saying, huh, this is not working the way I thought, pushing back, signs of burnout, pushing back on the companies. I think where we did get it wrong is we probably should have insisted or created a path toward interoperability faster, so made it easier for all the computers to talk to each other. But in terms of sort of the the, the relationship, the troubled uh, relationship between clinicians and their computers, I think we were destined to go through this phase, and I think we would have gone through it whenever, whenever we implemented, even if it was five years later. Thanks. And just another question, you know, we, we're talking a lot here about EHRs that clinicians are using, but how do you see all the tools that patients are going to be using beyond just access to information, but the apps and the um, devices and other things that patients are using? How do you see that as really also transforming the way we deliver care? I think it's an exciting trend and, uh, and, and one in which it's of a piece, which is sort of how do we have engaged and uh, patients and, and dampen down the hierarchy between healthcare professionals and patients and have patients more involved using, using self tools. If you think about technology in other industries, you know, you now do all sorts of things, financial management, your own finances, your own plane reservations, things that you never could do yourself until technology enabled it. So I think we're going to see a lot of that. Uh, there's a lot of potential for hype and actually a decent amount of potential for harm as well because we want to be sure that patients aren't given tools to do things that aren't right and don't allow them to make their own diagnosis but have it be the wrong diagnosis. I think in the end, all these things have to sync up and where we have really gotten it wrong is we said, all right, let's, how great is this going to be? Patients are going to have sensors or be answering questions that all can go to their primary care doctor. And how wonderful is it going to be the primary care doctor is going to have all this information about her 2,000 patients? Like, what planet is that where a primary care doctor can manage this new information flow? So we really gave no thought to the idea of enabling patients and connecting them to the healthcare system. You have to then figure out, like, who's going to manage all that information? I think we need a new layer that we haven't yet in invented, which is somebody who's going to sort of manage the data flow, and it might resemble something like an air traffic controller. But it's a hopeful trend. Uh, it's just going to take time to work out all the details. Great. Great great back and forth. Thank you guys so much. And, and we'll have time for more of that in about uh, 10 or 15 minutes when we get um, through Tejal's uh, excellent uh, presentation here. So, so it does seem like the right time to turn to the Free From Harm report and the place technology has in it, Tejal. Uh, first, you know, why do you think it was important to include a recommendation about technology in the report? And then getting a bit broader, how can we use technology to, to improve patient safety in, in our healthcare systems? Thanks, Mike, and hopefully I'll address both of those questions as I go through um, these slides. So we can go with the first slide where basically just to set the context, and I'm sure this is not news to anyone on this uh, WIHI, but we believe patient safety is a public health issue. And despite progress, preventable harm remains unacceptably frequent, significant mortality, morbidity, quality of life implications, and really adversely affecting patients in every care setting. And so... About two and a half to three years ago, we decided that we should convene a group of experts to think about since 1999 when Two Eras Human came out and that really started our work in patient safety. We wanted to convene this panel of experts to say, what have we accomplished thus far 
and where do we need to go? What are going to be the recommendations that really accelerate our progress in patient safety? And so about <laughs> a year and a half ago, we uh, released the Free From Harm report from the National Patient Safety Foundation. And this slide just shows you the link in case you're interested in taking a look at the full report. And in the report, we talk a lot about the need for a total system safety approach, meaning moving from kind of piecemeal um, safety projects to approaches that really tackle the whole system. And so that really answers that first question of why technology is in there, because technology is one of those foundational things that really impact the whole system. And so in this report, we had eight recommendations that we highlighted as the ways to accelerate our progress in patient safety. And I won't go through all eight, except to say that um, it included things like leadership and culture, patient engagement, workforce safety, a lot of these foundational things that we need to do. But the eighth out of the eight recommendations was ensure that technology is safe and optimized to improve patient safety. And really the premise of this recommendation was that technology has proven potential to improve patient safety, but only if we can minimize the risks. And widespread use has led to some demonstrated reductions in medical errors. However, we've also learned that we can introduce new problems and issues with these technologies, as Bob was alluding to. And so we really need to learn how to optimize those benefits and minimize the unintended consequences. You know, if you think about what we know about technology's benefits, there have been studies that show error reduction with certain technologies. If you look at things like computerized physician order entry, barcode technology, e-prescribing, tools for handoffs, et cetera, we've seen studies that demonstrate value in error reduction. However, these often were done in very controlled research settings, and so we've also seen that there's been challenges with spread, that when these technologies get spread, we, again, may not be seeing those benefits, and we may be seeing unintended consequences due to variability in usability, design, implementation, all those kinds of things. So um, I often say we spent the last decade convincing people to invest in technology, and we're going to spend the next decade or beyond uh, learning how to implement well so we actually get those benefits that we're hoping these investments will lead to. So when you think about HIT optimization, first we need to think about optimizing some of the things that are probably driving people crazy right now. So things like over-alerting, for example, and making sure that we're not alerting um, about too many things, making sure we're alerting about the right things, um, reducing variability across vendors. It shouldn't be that if you buy one system versus another, your, your error rate might be twice as high, yet we've seen studies that demonstrate that. And then inter interoperability, as uh, as Bob alluded to, between devices and also between systems and across the entire care continuum, all of these things need to be optimized. And then we know that there's these kind of new unintended consequences that that you know, we maybe we should have predicted, but we didn't predict, and now we're in the middle of, and we need to figure out how to actually solve. So uh, clinical documentation, I think, is probably the number one example that comes up when I talk about technology and this issue of copy and paste and how I just remember how excited I was when I thought, oh, I don't have to read handwritten notes anymore. I'll be able to read them. This will be great. I can access them from anywhere. And um, now we have, you know, 20 page discharge summaries and you can't figure out what actually happened because there's so much information in that discharge summary that the actual uh, clinical pearls are lost. And so that's an example of something that we're, we as a um, as a field are going to have to figure out how to improve because clearly we don't want to go back to handwritten notes, but we need to have a better clinical documentation process than we do now. 
Um, and another example is accurate medication and problem lists. I think in the paper world, we often didn't even see a med list or a problem list. Now we see it right in front of us and we see that they're often not accurate. So again, it doesn't mean we want to get rid of those. It means how do we figure out better processes to optimize the accuracy of those kinds of lists? You know, another unintended consequence and, um, that, that Bob mentioned as well is really the impact EHRs have had on clinicians. And, um, you know, I mentioned in Free From Harm, we talked about uh, physical and psychological safety of the workforce, of which burnout is a is a key issue. And, you know, if we have burnt out clinicians, it's very hard for them to take high quality, safe care of patients. And unfortunately, EHRs are now contributing to the burnout issue. And there's been data from primary care, from nursing, et cetera. So this too is one of those areas we're going to need to spend time on thinking about usability and implementation and all those kinds of things, because this is certainly not, uh, as I think Bob said, they invested a half a billion dollars or whatever it was. And I'm sure this was not one of the things that they were hoping for with that kind of investment. Um, when we think about solutions to some of these challenges, I think it's really important to use um, what's called a socio-technical model. Hardeep Singh and Dean Siddig kind of coined this model. Um, so there is hardware and software and those kinds of pieces that need to be um, part of the solution and redesign of those, but we have to think of it in the context of a lot of other things because you know, we need to think about training, policies, procedures, um, you know, regulations, measurement, monitoring, the clinical content. All of those things are applicable when we think about designing systems well. So it's easy to sort of point the finger and say, well, we just need to have, um, you know, the vendors make the system better, which is part of the issue. But there's a lot of other pieces as well in this model that need to get uh, redesigned. And as Bob said, really redesigning the whole process and the whole system um, to make these technologies work better. If you have a bad process and you layer technology on top, you may just end up with a really fast bad process. So really important to think about that entire process and its redesign. So this issue of HIT safety and the unintended consequences has been a uh, major focus at the national level. The Office of the National Coordinator back in 2013 had a safety plan to uh, make it easier to report HIT hazards and conduct post-marketing surveillance, um, establish some safety priorities for research and think about R&D for tools and best practices. Um, resulting from that, ONC released also the SAFER guides, which are very useful tools as you're implementing technology to, that help you ask questions to make sure you've done that implementation as well as you can. Uh, and then ECRI has a collaborative since 2014, the HIT, the Partnership for HIT um, safety that's starting to do work around trying to address some of these unintended consequences. So looking at something like copy and paste and thinking about, well, what are the tools that an organization needs to have to better control, train, educate, monitor, copy and paste, and what are the functionalities that vendors need to be putting into systems to make copy and paste work better? So it's a toolkit really intended for both of those communities. And, um, just it's the, the link is there as well, but ECRI is coming out with other tools like this going forward. They've got another one on patient identification. And I think that kind of work is going to be really important as we go forward, again, as we, to think about how do we design and implement well. So I'll, I'll end with this last slide, which is just specific tactics from the Free From Harm report related to um, this particular recommendation. And I think that we will see progress in HIT safety um, 
through following some of these recommendations and a lot of the other work that's going on at the national level, but we do have a long way to go as well. And I think as you've heard, you know, we envision that this is going to be a long journey to, to get where we want to get to. So um, I will uh, pass it back to you, Mike, and look forward to the chat. Great. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Tejal. It was a great, uh, great insight from both of you. I, I appreciate uh, you, you sharing your expertise, as I'm sure our audience does as well. Uh, so as you mentioned, let's turn to our chat now. Uh, already lots of thought-provoking comments and questions coming through. Uh, if you do want to chat in, please just make sure to send to all participants so that we see it and we can get to it. And we'll get to as many questions as we can in the next 20 minutes or so. Uh, let's start, though, with a question that's been floating around in my head while I've been listening to both of you, particularly when I saw uh, Bob's um, uh, The Drawing of the Seven-Year-Old Girl, which uh, I imagine stuck with a, a lot of us as, as we listened to the presentation. Um, so you're both physicians, of course, but like all of us, you're both patients, too. So I'd like you both to chime in on this. How do you mitigate the negative effects of technology when you see the doctor? Um, Bob, Bob, can we start with you on that one? Sure. Like I just saw the doctor yesterday, and uh, we emailed each other uh, beforehand, which was useful, although I worry about the effect of him getting emails from 2,000 patients. Uh, I noticed that the way the computer was positioned in his office allowed him to make eye contact with me while looking at the computer uh, periodically. Um, one of the things we've done that I think has been, been very important is we went back into every practice, or we're still doing it, about four years after implementation and brought in a kind of a SWAT team of lean experts as well as IT experts to re-optimize the practices. Because I think what often happens is you put in the computers in the beginning, do the big training, do the, the go live, and then you think you're done, but you are not done. You've just started. And it, it's one of these things where it's almost like letting it settle for a little bit. You don't want to try to optimize right away. You want to wait a little while till people are used to it, using the tools, and then after a period of a year or two, it's worth going back in and seeing what's, what you've learned, what, what has happened. And I think I found in the primary care practice that I visited, it's much, much better, and people are more happy with the tools after going through that level of post, post-optimization. So that's something I would really would suggest. That's great. Thank you, Bob. Tejal, what would you add? Well, I think about my uh, recent visit to the pediatrician for my kids. And, I mean, one of the things I've observed that maybe is a positive going forward is the prevalence of laptops more than desktops, which does allow better, uh, I think, eye contact and um, face-to-face interaction because they're not – you're not seated at a desk behind a computer but really have this laptop and you can pull it up on your little chair and show exactly what you're – um, doing to the kids, which I think is very reassuring for the kids. So I, I think those strategies and me encouraging the pediatrician to, why don't you show them that growth, growth curve and, you know, those kinds of things is a way to mitigate it too. So it doesn't feel like the technology is a barrier, but it's really a way to better interact and engage. Great. Thank you. Great I have to say, Mike, just, just, just over the, over the long haul, the answer here is going to be in new kinds of technologies. I envision that within five years, you know, the doctor and the patient will have a conversation. It will be picked up by audio. It will end up in the note that way, not just in a voice recognition way, but in a smart way that says it sounds like you're talking about heart failure, you know, I'll go and review the chart through, you know, artificial intelligence to try to figure out what what relevant things in your past history I need to know uh, and bring forward 
to the doctor's attention or the nurse's attention. I think that that's, we don't have that today, and I'm not sure that's going to be built by the existing electronic health record vendors, but I think an interesting and important trend is you now see Silicon Valley getting very interested in healthcare, and you now see the electronic health records being essentially forced to open up their architecture. So moving the data out and then bringing it back in is going to become substantially easier than it has been in the uh, up till now. That's great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, again, some some nice comments coming in um, through the through the chat as well. So if you're able, please take a look at those. We're gonna we're gonna start with uh, Bob. I'm gonna come back to you for this one. This is sort of a um, I think in your early comments about alerts, and I know you did a lot of work uh, around alerts for for your book, The Digital Doctor. Um, would you please help us understand alerts per hour? Is there a consistent, easier way we can implement standard ways to to measure alerts? Well, there. I, I, actually, measuring them is not particularly hard. I mean, your IT people know how many alerts go off per 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 doctor per nurse. I mean, I, I think measuring them actually is quite important. We've did a study here a couple of years ago where we looked at the number of alarms <laughs> that go off from our ICU monitors in a month at our uh, so across our seventy ICU beds. And if you'd asked me, I would have said, yeah, they seem like they go off pretty often. Maybe, you know, maybe 50,000 or something. The answer was 2.5 million times is there an audible alert from our ICU monitor to the point that when we've asked nurses, like, when, when would they worry that something terrible is going on with the patient? They, the answer they give is silence. But when there's no alerts, they'd worry that something is terrible, which shows you, you know, what an upside down world there is. I think the key is, uh, what we did, this is, you know, in retrospect, ridiculous, but of course we lived it and we did it. We just said, well, how wonderful it will it be when we have computerized order entry and a medication, uh, electronic medication system to alert the doctor or nurse or pharmacist every time there might be a drug interaction, every time there might be, uh, you know, a side effect. The problem is we gave no thought to the idea of what happens when you do that. And the answer is you are pinging people dozens of times a day, and if they're human, they will stop paying attention. So the key issue now is not so much measuring them, but measuring the number of times that people click out of them. And if it turns out that you're firing an alert for a given, let's say, medication interaction, and people always click out of it and ignore it, you should stop firing it, because that's not neutral, it's dangerous. Every unnecessary alert increases the probability that people will not pay attention to a real one. And so the answer ultimately here is going to come through some technological innovations where it's, it's, you're not going through them manually, but, but the system is monitoring that and saying it looks like every time this kind of alert or alarm fires in the middle of the day in the CCU or for a pediatrician prescribing Tylenol, Every time that happens, nothing bad ever happens to the patient. They always click out of it. We are automatically not going to fire such an alert. We have to go through that and build the sensibility and the technologies to just start turning these things off because they're dangerous. And I'll just add to that. Um, I agree, Bob, that it should be something that really happens almost automatically in the future with that kind of monitoring of, of override rates and acceptance rates and that sort of thing. But, you know, there has been... Um, data to show that it's possible, at least, because I think, uh, you know, this is one of the biggest pain points for the clinicians is all of these alerts, and most studies show 90%, 95% of these alerts are ignored or overridden. Um, but if you do streamline and if you do really um, look at which ones are the most clinically important and we're not going to alert on the rest and we're just going to focus on those, um, we've seen acceptance rates go up to, you know, 65 70% versus that 5 to 10%. And so, 
And this gets, I think, a bit to that socio-technical model as well, though, because there's often a barrier to saying, well, we can't turn those off because, you know, legally, what will that mean? Or, you know, the other types of concerns people have. But I think the point is really important that if you show all those alerts, people are going to miss the really important ones. So the risk of harm is much greater by showing all those alerts. And we need to figure out how to make that happen and sort of get past some of those barriers. Great comments. Thank you. Um, all right, so we're going to turn to a listener from uh, Canada. So uh, Mona, we just uh, her comment, we just implemented a secure messaging system for physicians. They're seeing this as one more tech piece impacting their work, so very related to the conversation we're just having about alerts. Uh, they feel that people can now contact them in multiple ways and have no privacy. This is on top of EMRs, invoicing portals. It seems to be developing into techno stress term. Um, any ideas on how to manage the stress of all this tech? It's, it seems it's just another thing. So uh, any, any tips or guidance on, on what, to, what to do in that situation? Well, I think it's been a very hopeful trend over the last couple of years uh, to appreciate clinician, and I think we're talking more about physicians, but I think it's all clinician uh, burnout. And, and, and the idea, when you look at burnout rates, they are going up quite a bit. And when you ask clinicians why, uh, they often cite digital as as one of the main, if not the main reason. So the first thing has been sort of calling it out and naming it and recognizing that these are good people that are now burning out uh, because of the amount of digital information that they have to consume that is essentially undoable. Then you have to then, you know, ask hard questions about what do you do with it? In some ways, it's an analog to the alerts. It's like, okay, you might naively say more information is better. That sounds right. But at some point, it's not. And not only because of stress, but because people will begin missing important things because of the forest and trees problem. And so uh, the idea of allowing patients to uh, access their clinicians through a variety of electronic data streams sounds all good. But you, I think we all have to take a step back and say, how are we going to manage this? And what we did in the beginning, which is just turn on these spigots and, and just say it's all good and the doctors, you know, because they're professionals, will, 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 will do it, that doesn't work. And so, you know, the more hopeful ideas here are ones where I see organizations beginning to think about a new layer. And it's some of that you don't want to put in another layer between a patient and their frontline clinician. But here's one where I think we have to. I think ultimately the data is going to have to be monitored by someone who is sort of a new role where they're monitoring the data on a 100 or a 1,000 patients in a health system and seeing how they're all doing and see, then seeing their sensors and triaging their questions. Because if every single one of them gets mainlined to the primary care doctor, you're going to have nobody going to primary care medicine and a lot of things missed. Uh, and I think we can do that. I think we can build these things. And I think the technologies that gets better will help us uh, help us do that. And. And putting it into a safety context, I mean, if you think about we, the knowledge we have about the impact of interruptions, for example, you know, if you're a clinician trying to, you know, sit with a patient and diagnose something and you're constantly being interrupted by these, uh, you know, whether it's instant messaging or whatever it might be, that's going to have safety implications. So I think Bob's absolutely right. We need to think about what the workflow redesign needs to be, what other members of a team there need to be to kind of manage this influx, because um, otherwise we're going to we're going to create more harm. Excellent. Um, great comments again. Thank you very much, both of you. Um, we'll turn now to a, um, 
uh, actually another listener from outside the U.S., uh, really interesting comment here. So in working on improvement projects in places, countries with limited EHR adoption, often come across the statement that an EHR would solve these problems, such as medication errors, for example. So what suggestions do either of you have about how to communicate the positives and negatives of the digitization of medical records to health workers in these settings? So almost more of a communication issue here. What would, uh, what would you guys say to that? Well, I think I would start with every new technology introduces new problems. Um, so you, you can't go into it with blinders on thinking that technology is going to solve everything. And, you know, the whole conversation we've had about redesigning process and all of that has to go hand in hand. But also, you know, once you do implement a technology, and yes, technology can help reduce medication errors, but there's a lot of work to design processes beforehand and also monitor afterwards because there might be those new issues and errors that came along that you didn't expect that you need to be looking for and monitoring. So, um, you know, my messaging would be, yes, technology can be really helpful, but it involves a lot of work um, before and after to make sure you're really achieving the benefits you want. Great. Bob, would you add anything? Yeah, I mean, the the, the reason I subtitled my book uh, Hope, Hype, and Harm is that it's all of that. <laughs> um, and I, you know, one of the fears I had in writing and talking about some of the challenges of technology, you know, people will come up to me periodically, usually if they haven't read the book but just sort of heard about it, and say, I agree with you, you know, we should get rid of the computers and bring back the paper. Uh, they're they're crazy, I'm afraid. <laughs> I, just, it, it, I mean, we, you know, we we have to do this. And it will get better. And the data are pretty clear. We've not yet seen the productivity advantages uh, that were promised because of the productivity paradox. But we have seen, on average, that care is better and safer with computers than without. And there's no question, as I go around my own institution, that, that there are a lot of errors that used to happen that do not happen anymore because of technology. So it's important to kind of keep your eye on the prize here. Uh, it's easy to romanticize how wonderful it was before. It was not. I mean, paper stinks. It's not the right way to move data around. And let me just read something. Walt Mossberg, who's the dean of technology reporters, just wrote his last column. He's retiring. And uh, I'll just read the first uh, paragraph briefly. Let me start by revising uh, the off-quoted first line of my first personal technology column, in 1991, personal computer quote personal computers are just too hard to use, and it isn't your fault. It was true then, and for many many years after. Not only were the interfaces confusing, but most tech products demanded frequent tweaking and fixing of a type that required more technical skill than people had. The whole field was new, and engineers were not designing products for normal people who had other talents and interests. That was 1991. Who would say that today about their iPhone? Or about their, their 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 laptop or their tablet. Nobody. I mean, it, it's they're so intuitive and so well designed. I think we're in 1991 when it comes to health IT, and I and unfortunately we've got to go through this phase the same when we we went through with the rest of our digital life before we reach something that I think is considerably better. So, you know, I would not romanticize paper, and I think that the you know it's important to learn from our journey, and if you can avoid making some of the mistakes we did by thinking about the socio-technical aspects and getting people more engaged, that's terrific. Uh, but but the the solution here is not paper. That's great. Thanks. Thanks for reading that too. It's very, uh, very timely. Uh, you know, we, we talk a lot of uh, talked a lot about uh, how this. You know, you just mentioned we're not going back. This is this is the way it is. One other thing that we obviously can't change is time. And a great question uh, or a great comment here about 
you know, the issue of physicians staring at a computer during a consult is not merely a technology problem. Uh, it's obviously a time issue, given how physicians are remunerated by how many patients they see in a day and are under pressure to complete the documentation during the consult, right? So uh, have you guys seen anything, any, any sort of nice uh, tips or, or thoughts about how to, um, how to make the most of, of a very fast appointment? Well, the data are, are pretty clear that, that, you know, the promised productivity benefits have not been realized in part because the trade-off is, you know, you couldn't possibly review the 200 pages of paper medical records, but you wouldn't even try. And now there is this sort of obligation to kind of go through everything because it's all there and all legible. And we've not yet built the tools to help physicians or any other clinicians manage that. I guess uh, I think the technology is going to get better. I think that we are going to see more tools that allow you to, for example, do a chart review in a way that you have to do manually today, but I think in the future will be uh, digitally uh, digitally facilitated. I think we will see new professionals enter the scene to do certain tasks. If you think about productivity gains from, from technology, often what happens is you allow people to practice at the top of their life. You you allow patients and families to do things for themselves that they used to have to go to the office to do. They used to, you may allow a televisit and they can do it from home. You may, may allow a clerk to do something that a nurse used to do, and similar a nurse do something that a doctor used to do. So we have to kind of work through all of these things. I think we also have to be much more thoughtful about what we're making people do and and whether it's the kind of crazy billing rules that make me document 10 review of systems when that makes no clinical sense to the questions that we make nurses and doctors ask of patients. My dad had a cardiac bypass operation a few months ago, and I watched the nurses and the doctors. Five different people took his history, and they're all putting in a computer. The nurse was sitting there basically feeding this checklist of about 20 questions, several of which were really crazy, one of which was this question 12 of 20 was, have you ever experienced loss in your life? And if so, how did you cope? That's a question on a questionnaire. Now, to me, that's a year of psychotherapy. That's not a question on a questionnaire. But we've, we just say, oh, now you have a computer. We can, we can actually prompt the doctor and the nurse to ask these things. We've got to go back in and clear out the weeds here and see which things we're asking people to do that absolutely add no value. Because uh, those are a lot of the time sinks that we've built into the technology. Yeah, I, I completely agree with Bob. I think we need to think about better ways to document and, you know, through voice recognition and other things. But I think we need to take a, a real long, hard look at what we're asking people to document and um, thinking about what's actually adding value to the care versus, you know, these things that we have to do for billing. And, um, you know, I'm hoping some of those conversations are going to start happening at the national level because until then it's it's – it's going to be hard to change this tide of having to spend so much time in documentation. And, you know, this is one of the things that's leading to burnout in primary care. If you look at the hours uh, primary care doctors spend outside of office hours doing their documentation, it's a huge number of hours. And so, um, you know, we're going to need to figure out how to do this better um, because it's just contributing more and more to, to physician burnout. That's great. All right, we're going to squeeze squeeze in one more question before we uh, let you guys have uh, have a chance to give your final thoughts. Um, uh, a comment, uh, seeking comment on the lack of standardization of the medication list for all populations. So, um, listener here has been in clinical IT for over a decade and find that little effort uh, has been made in legislation and EMR integration to support one patient medication list per patient, and uh, commenting that it's a huge void and safety issue for all patients and providers. Um, Thoughts? 
Well, um, you know, I know we spent uh, much time, uh, you know, when I worked at a large health system, even figuring out who owned the med list, who could touch it, who could update it, how do we reconcile it at every um, point that the patient interacts with the healthcare system. So this is a huge challenge to, to, to know what the patient is taking at any given time. And I think actually some of these IT tools will help us um, to get there. But I haven't seen, um, you know, to the point of the question, anything that's going to be uh, coming down legislatively or anything like that to help with it. This is a lot of, uh, you know, process redesign work and IT redesign work that has to happen to make it easier to actually maintain these lists accurately, because right now it is a huge problem. Great. What would you add, Bob? Anything? Yeah, not not much to add. I think you know. I think that that again, we've we've digitized the paper processes, and if you think about now the fact that the med list is digital, the past medical history is digital, the all those sort of things. You know, how can it be that we don't now flow that through the entire system so there is only one version of the truth that then gets updated when the patient goes to the pharmacy or gets updated when there's a new med? We have to come up with some rules of the road and then bake them into digital systems. And the problem is, of course, you talk about multiple digital systems that, you know, the Epic system we have here has to interface with Walgreens system, has to interface with Quest. I think it's all surmountable as we kind of move toward the next phase. I think the first phase here was just get these systems in. In and get the data from 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 uh, pen and paper to digital. Now we have to be much more thoughtful about how we move it around, how we connect the pieces. And I think a lot of the advances here will come from the fact that we're entering a new world where a lot of the innovation is not going to come necessarily from the big enterprise EHR vendors, the Epics and the Cerners of, of the world, but rather come from Silicon Valley type companies building new tools for specific purpose, purposes that then can bolt into the enterprise systems. And I, I think that's where you can see a lot of the progress. Great. Thank you, Bob. Uh, and we'll come back to, to uh, Bob, both you and Tejal, just for uh, some closing comments and, and just uh, about 60 seconds here. But I want to turn it over to John to tell our listeners about an upcoming IHI program. Yeah. Th- thanks, Mike. Um, the digital transformation we discussed on today's WIHI isn't the only thing shaking up healthcare. Um, uncertainty, reform, uncertainty about reform, and inefficiencies are all obstacles in the way of providing the best and safest care for patients. And that's why IHI is proud to offer the Innovation Management Development Program, which is a two-day seminar that'll teach you how to develop a reliable system and structure to test new and creative ideas to help your organization find a better path to better care. You'll learn to identify the key components of an innovation management system, to design a reliable relationship between those innovation activities and operations, and uh, learn how to build a sustainable culture for innovation at your organization. The Innovation Manager Development Program will be held here at IHI in Cambridge on June 20th and the 21st. And for more information, you can visit IHI.org slash Innovation Manager. Thank you so much, John. Bob, let's turn to you first. Um, in just a minute or two, just just share some sort of closing thoughts. Leave something, uh, leave something for our listeners to think about. I guess I'd say a couple of things. One is to retain some sense of optimism. This is going to get better. And, uh, you know, it's sort of at its worst now because we implemented the tools and the tools aren't very good and we didn't, weren't very thoughtful. I'd say the organizational challenge is, is this idea of reimagining the work. What does that look like at your place? You know, who are those people? Because they're probably some combination of IT people, patient safety people, quality people, process redesign people. You need young people because those people are less stuck in the old way of thinking. 
And so what are the what are the kind of organizational entities and fora that you've created to bring those people together so a young person who has an idea of a new way of doing something has the opportunity to bring that forward, connects the technology people to build it or buy a new app that can bolt into your enterprise system. That's really hard organizational work, and I think most of us have not yet built the infrastructure and the culture to do that work. The ones that do, I think, will see progress faster than the ones that don't. Thanks, Bob, and thank you again for sharing your expertise today. Uh, Tejal, I'll give you, a, give you a chance to share a closing thought. Yeah, I think um, my closing thought is also um, that one of optimism. I mean, these technologies will improve quality and safety, and so we just need to get to that end state, and and it may not be that far away for some of these technologies. For example, things like uh, CPOE, where uh, computerized physician order entry, where the the evidence is pretty clear that it's that it's helped with medication safety. So um, these technologies will help quality and safety. And I think what I would say is I'd encourage people who are in this space to really look at some of the tools that are out there already that people are starting to develop, you know, whether it's the safer guides, whether it's the work that ECRI is doing um, around best practices to, to minimize unintended consequences. There is work out there that I'd encourage everybody to, to explore and try to then go back and implement. And and actually, my, my last point was going to is going to echo what Bob said is I think it's really important for people working in quality and safety to not have be siloed from uh, their IT colleagues. And even if you're not an expert in technology, but having that quality and safety lens and voice at the table during uh, uh, selection of vendor discussions, during implementation discussions, all of that is really important to start to think about, well, what could some of those uh, unintended consequences be and how can we mitigate those? So I would say really try to break down those silos and uh, and encourage the, the cross-fertilization across these disciplines. Great. Thank you so much, Tejal, and a big thank you to today's audience as well. Uh, it's a great discussion, great questions. We thank you for participating. Next up on WIHI on June 14th, how to beat the boring aspects of QI. A reminder that you can download the chat and any slides we use for our discussion today when you log off. We'd very, we'd very much appreciate your filling out a brief survey that will pop up. As an improvement organization, we want to know what worked for you today and how to continue to make WIHI a better program. Check out the archive pages for WIHI where you'll find an audio download of this program, plus all the resources posted by tomorrow. You can also find the podcast on iTunes. Subscribe under Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And if you like what you hear, we would be grateful if you'd write us a review. If you have any questions, connect with us at info at IHI.org. The people who make WIHI possible are Matt Morse, Vicki Minden, Jameson Case, Christine Leong, and of course, John Gothier. It's been a privilege to be your host for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Mike Britton. Enjoy the rest of your day.